Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 103 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike. That is Gavin. Fia is on vacation this week. Gavin, do you have any predictions about this January? Um, because you have a history of those coming true. I sure do, and uh, I'm going to be safe and say no. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you're not a very, very, very long-time yes. listener to the podcast, <laughs> well, you'll have to go back and become a long-time listener to the podcast. It was, which, it was what, like way, episode four? It, it, was, it was incredibly early. I'll actually look really quickly. Months. You go ahead and do that while I just go ahead and see yeah, bring us in. a little behind the scenes here. Uh, Gavin and myself uh, saw each other recently. Gavin held a reception on the East Coast for his wedding, which was a lot of fun. And I got to meet a few people as well as the parents of a few people that actually listened to the podcast. And I've got <laughs> to say that, number one, uh, it was a shock to find out that people actually listen to the podcast. And number two, yeah. uh, it was wonderful to meet all you. You were very nice. And uh, thank you very much for all the kind words that you you happen to share with us. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and a little more uh, behind the scenes sort of stuff. Um, both my mom and my wife Liz uh, caught COVID at uh, <laughs> at that reception. Um, that, like at this point, I'm going to laugh about that a little bit because that's a little bit right. Funny, we're both fine, but you know, my mom, my parents are fine. Liz is fine. Um, right. I have been testing positive. It's weird. So my mom has had COVID. I think this is her second time. And, but my dad never caught it. Like he tested and everything as you should. Mm -hmm. And, you know, wore a mask everywhere he went while my mom had it. But, um, yeah, never tested positive. And so I'm actually taking a test, uh, tonight. Cause I go back to work, uh, tomorrow. One of the nice things about and Mike, I'm sure this counts for you too. What, one of the nice things about working at a school is that, uh, you get a whole bunch of time off around the holidays. It's incredible, and there's some people that there's some teachers that like are real defensive about this, and they're like, "Oh, I work so hard during the year; I deserve my time." Like, you can just say it's incredible, right? It's yeah. fantastic that you get this time off. Yeah, totally. So, um, I have been off since I think the 14th of December, and then my first day back to work was yesterday uh, at the day the the time you're listening to this. Um, so. Um, I'm definitely ready to go back, though. Uh, there's definitely such a thing as being uh, having too much time in your hands. I've been playing lots of video <laughs> yeah. games to the point where it's kind of making my eyes hurt. Uh, <laughs> um, and also, just for for the listeners, all the way back to episode five was the uh, the episode that was published on January sixth, twenty twenty one, the day of the Capitol insurrection. Um, and I don't remember if it was that episode or I, w- I would assume that it was that episode because we recorded, I, I you know, a bit in advance. Right. I don't know exactly what the time frame was. I just remember that was still early on when I was still listening to the full episodes. Right. Yeah. Before, uh, yep. before they got published, it was at the very end of the episode. Oh, and yeah. I had to record an update that I just kind of slapped right <laughs> on the end for everybody, um, uh, which was you know, one of the funniest parts of the, uh, of the whole ordeal. Yeah. God, two years later. Look at that. Um, oh, absolutely. So, um, as we are getting, um, ready to get started here, Gavin, do you have some reminders for everybody? I sure do. So do not forget to rate the show on whatever platform you listen to us on and to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, as well as, 
any other various social media platforms. I really should get Instagram. Liz keeps telling me that I need to learn how Instagram works, but I think we need less social media. I think we should. I mean, I yeah, as a society, probably. Um, well, I mean, that's that one's obvious, but just we should <laughs> we should have to pick Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. We should have to spin a wheel once a month, and that's just the social media that we use for that month. I feel like every like marketing person is like that's that's a good way to kill your brand. Uh, um, <laughs> anywho, make sure to rate us on all those things and follow us on social media. So that way, you can give us feedback about how the show is going and uh, how rambly our intros are this week. Um, so even though I've tested negative for COVID, I definitely have a big old headache, mostly from being dehydrated and my eyes hurting from too much TV. Um, anywho. Do all those things so you can let us know uh, how we're doing on the show, as well as any future topics you'd like to hear on the podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, we have uh, some forms to fill out down below in the show notes. As for next episode, we're going to be talking about, for the first time in a very long time, a group of dinosaurs, the theropods, which are a very big, very diverse group of dinosaurs, probably the most recognizable group of dinosaurs to most regular people. Um, so that's going to be next episode in two weeks. And uh, before we move on to uh, today in history, I actually have a special announcement here that Mike doesn't even know about. Oh, what the hell? So um, I actually uh, two days ago, the, the day this goes up, had a video up on a YouTube channel called the PaleoCast Gaming Network. Uh, the PaleoCast is a very long time, long running, uh, really, really well produced uh, paleontology podcast that also you can find wherever wherever pods are cast. And they have a gaming. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Why have I never heard that before? Wherever pods are. That's incredible. You've never heard that before. Wow. How is it that you. I've, no, I've, you know, I've always heard wherever you can find your podcast, not wherever pods are cast. <laughs> that was incredible. Oh, why? Thank you. Um, but yeah, so PaleoCast, really well-known, really big um, paleontology podcast, and they have a gaming YouTube channel where they talk about all the various, you know, uh, aspects of paleontology in video games. And so I, just this past Monday, had a video talking about the new Pokemon games that came out uh, back in November. So if you want to uh, see my wonderful face and hear me talk nerdy stuff about Pokemon for uh, give or take 25 minutes, uh, there'll be a link to that down in the show notes as well. What was the name of this uh, this YouTube channel? PaleoCast Gaming Network, but it is the British spelling of Paleo, so it is P A L A E O Cast. That still sounds like some of the most Gavin stuff I've ever heard. Absolutely, um, and so the the folks that run PaleoCast are really great. They're uh, affiliated with the Paleontological Association, which is uh, one of the biggest, you know, like like societies, you know, how, you know, there's different, uh, like the American medical association, things like that. Um, but in the UK for paleontology, mm -hmm. the paleontological association. So, um, really happy to be involved and, and be included. So if you've got some spare time and like Pokemon or even just want to, to help support paleontological education, maybe uh, check that out down below. And definitely make sure that you, uh, yeah, check out that link that Gavin has posted down there. I was about to give a whole reminder to check the description and then right as <laughs> I was about to do that, you gave that reminder. So here we go. 
yeah, I guess double reminder. Check the link below. Absolutely. So what do you got for us for today in history, Mike? A uh, pretty simple one today. So um, if you, uh, the year 1970. Okay. What, what are we thinking about that is going on in the year 1970? Vietnam. So there's Vietnam. Good. Not related to Vietnam at all. Okay. But correct. Vietnam. What what has ended? Uh, the year 1970 is like the end of something, actually. The 60s. <laughs> so, correct. When you think <laughs> of the 1960s, what is one of the most iconic symbols of the 1960s? JFK. No. Space. No. Woodstock. Closer. Ooh. I got nothing then. Uh, so, you were closer with Woodstock because that is uh, music-related. Um, on today's date, January 4th, 1970, the Beatles apparently had their last recording session oh, wow. at Abbey Road Studios. Huh. Um, apparently, they were finishing George Harrison's tune, I, Me, Mine. Um, I uh, I remember spending a lot of my time when I was younger just saying, hey, Beatles overrated, Beatles suck, Beatles this, that. And uh, two things have gotten me to stop saying that. <laughs> Number one, just like listening to the Beatles more and being like, actually, they, they they're pretty good. Some catchy, they just sort of like some catchy, you know, generally inoffensive rock songs um, and pop songs mm-hmm. for a while. And then number two, even if you are like me, just like, yeah, the Beatles are no good, whatever. Like your favorite band's favorite band is probably the Beatles. Like, yeah, ev- like people that know music. And like music, there you know there is something in there for everybody. So, uh, you know the uh, the Beatles are worth remembering whenever possible. And so, yeah, today um, in 1970 was the last time the Beatles were together working on a, uh, a Beatles tune. Apparently, John Lennon was not there, but uh, you know he's John Lennon, right? Whatever that means. I don't know all that much about like Beatles lore. Uh, Neither do I, and I, I'm debating on whether or not I like want to actually care. That's fair. Yeah, Beatles that's honestly like as we're gonna learn today yeah. in this episode. Uh, don't meet your heroes, kids. Um. <laughs> well, in that case, speaking of today's episode, Gavin, let's get right into it. Yes, uh, something French today is what I'm uh, looking at. We sure are talking about lots of French stuff. So we're going to be talking about Georges Cuvier. Uh, and as we'll learn, I have no idea where the George comes from because that is nowhere in his birth name. Um, and I've, n- I've in the sources I looked at, I could not find why he started calling himself George. Wait, that's that. That's that's All true. Right. Yeah. Um, again, I'm sure that there is an account of why somewhere. I could not find it. Um, anywho, Georges Cuvier. Some quick points about uh, the man. Before we delve super deep into into his life and times, he was born in 1769, nice, uh, and died in 1832. So just that late 1700s, early 1800s time frame uh, was his life. Uh, and historically, a lot of places around the world, a lot of kooky stuff happening, particularly in France. We'll we'll talk about it. Uh, oh, oh. <clears throat> Not only will you talk about it, my sophomores theoretically should be able to tell you about it this year. Absolutely. None of them will remember, but like theoretically, they should have be able them listen to, tell to you this about episode. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the, the important thing and why we're talking about Cuvier is because he is the father of the field of comparative anatomy, which is exactly what it sounds like. You look at the anatomy and all the organs, the way the different bones are shaped, 
of one organism for cuvier it happened to be vertebrate animals so animals with backbones and and other bones and things um and comparing it to another animal and seeing how they are the same seeing how they are different so while people had done that sort of thing before him he was the one who really took it and made it like its own field of science um and because of that because all we have of fossils is the bones and the hard part anatomy, he is basically the modern father of vertebrate paleontology as we understand it. Of vertebrate paleontology as we understand it. Okay. Yeah. So basically, that's a, that's a hell of a, exactly. a title to drop on somebody. Exactly. Um, among other things, he was the founder of biostratigraphy. We'll talk a bit more about what that means, but basically looking at the fossils in the rocks to learn more about the rocks themselves and figure out what rocks in area A are the same as rocks over in area B based just on the fossils, which is really important in a lot of geology. He gave the name to lots of popular um, groups of extinct animals, including mastodons, uh, being made famous currently by Elon Musk. Um, I thought you'd laugh a little harder at that, Mike. Uh, <laughs> Mastodon. Oh, I didn't laugh because I didn't get it. I get it now, though. Well, see, here's the problem. Well, it's not funny if I have to explain it. Well, no, it, sometimes you're just a little bit too smart for me. <laughs> and I was, I, I had my like paleontology brain and whatever couple of brain cells that was. <laughs> I was not thinking pop culture. And uh, Gavin, well done. Yeah, so mastodons are a group of uh, elephant relatives that look very superficially similar to elephants, but are a little stouter. Um, their legs aren't quite as long, but their teeth are very, very different. Um, and also, uh, it is the name of a company trying to be a competitor to Twitter, even though it's not going to happen. Um, which is where <laughs> the Elon Musk joke comes in. Anyway, so he was the first one to call them mastodons, even though that's not their scientific name anymore. That's just the popular, popular name. Uh, he also named the genus Pterodactylus and made the word pterodactyl. That was this guy. Mm-hmm. As well as uh, the by far the most famous extinct ground sloth, Megatherium. Um, and that becomes important later because sloths are real weird. He was the first person to... Oh, and again, with all of this first person stuff, uh, most of it is like the first white European person. Uh, <laughs> for context, some of it right. genuinely was like he was the first person to do this. But for a lot of the stuff... Meh, a little, little grain of salt, but he was the first person to recognize that Earth had once been dominated by reptiles, not mammals like we have today. So while the word dinosaur would not be created until after he was dead, he was the first one to say, hey, there sure was a lot of big reptiles around a while ago and a lot less mammals in all these fossils. Maybe that means something. And through that, he was really the person that got the whole idea of extinction in the cultural consciousness as something that could even happen. That still blows my mind that people didn't realize that like you could have zero of a species after previously having greater than zero. Right. And and we'll talk about like that, that a bit because he, his own views on this were a little interesting because he was a, a very uh, devout Lutheran throughout his life. So his own views on that were a little fuzzy but he was the first one to really popularize the idea not just in you know the terms of science but to the broader public as well um, okay 
Although, all of these cool things, cool science-y things that he did. Um, not all good things, though. He was a horrible racist, even for the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is that's that is one of my favorite things to do when I have to look up people from like any time before like 1982 <laughs> and just like go to the go to the controversies yeah. section of their Wikipedia page and be like, yep, yes, they were. Yeah. So Cuvier did lots of studies on the skulls of different groups of people and basically concluded that black people had more in common with monkeys than they do with white people, which is obviously untrue. Um, this is some uh, phrenology here we're talking about. I've never heard that word before, but that sounds really yeah. Phrenology is where um, like um, it's a discredited pseudoscience, um, but where like the bumps on people's heads and the shapes on people's heads were studied, and you know based on where certain bumps were, you could predict certain you know this or that characteristics of a person. Um, yeah, it was taken seriously for uh, quite a while. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't see that word bounced around with Cuvier. I think it was mostly. Um, Stuff just like skull size and different proportions of the skulls, not necessarily bumps and features. Um, but uh, so obviously he also must not have been that great of a comparative anatomist to look at two human <laughs> skeletons uh, and be like, this one clearly is uh, more close to monkeys than it is to the white man. Um, and then in particular, there's there's one case that we will talk about toward the end that I'm going to give a little bit of a trigger warning for when we talk about because it's it's really rough to talk about, um, but still important because, like I said, this guy is uh, generally really highly regarded in the field of paleontology. But as always, it's still really important to talk about these sorts of things um, because right. even the the important people in history are often not good people. Uh, <laughs> That's a good way to put it. All right. Or at least they're complicated. Exactly. Um, so let's let's rewind the clock. Georges Cuvier, or as he was born, Jean Leopold Nicolas Frédéric Cuvier. Again. Well done. No, thank you. No, no Georges in there at all. Uh, was born in August 1769 in the town of Montbéliard in what is now France, but at the time was part of the Holy Roman Empire. His dad was fairly wealthy. Uh, I saw several things describe him as part of the bourgeoisie. Uh, I think he was at some high-ranked military person. Um, and so his mom basically stayed at home and, and raised him. I believe he was an only child as well. Um, so she had lots of time to tutor him. So by the time that he got to sort of the late 1700s equivalent of what we would call like a prep school, um, he was like well ahead of the curve around age 10. Okay. And around this time, he started spending uh, some time with an, apparently another fairly wealthy uh, relative who had the complete works of another very famous French scientist of this time, uh, Georges-Louis Leclerc, Comte de Buffon. More commonly, you'll just hear him Buffon. Um, because he was, if Cuvier is sort of the father of comparative anatomy, Buffon is effectively the father of studying natural history as we understand it today. So studying the, your nat natural surroundings in the context of the past as well. Um, so Buffon is also another big deal guy um, in, in just the world of paleontology and geology. So this relative had all of his books, all of his papers and things. And 
uh, Cuvier would go visit this relative and he would read these books back to back to back and front to back multiple times. Um, he was most interested in, uh, it's mostly just referred to as Buffon's natural history, just a large encyclopedia covering basically everything that was known about the natural world at the time, uh, including physics, chemistry, mm. biology, and even some like engineering. And between the ages of 10 and 12, uh, Cuvier would read this encyclopedia front to back dozens of times. Just for fun? Just for fun. So, Nerd. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, by um, one biographer who sort of wrote this big biography of him uh, a year after he died, basically said by the time he was 12, he was, quote, as familiar with quadrupeds and birds as a first-rate naturalist. So any other nature enjoyer in the world at age 12, this kid was just as good as them. How, how good was that for this being the you know 18th century? Like how good were the best in the world? Uh, I mean, still pretty good. You know, this is when, you know, um, this was like, maybe not peak, um, but by the time Cuvier actually started doing a lot of the actual publishing and, and his uh, contributions to science, um, this was sort of peak global imperialism where right. people were, well, European nations were bringing things back. And particularly France at the time was very wealthy. So they would, the collections in the museum that he worked at that we'll talk about in a bit um, were extremely extensive. And so even though he didn't have access to them yet, they, they, he was still reading things about them. So more or less, if he went anywhere with the exception of maybe Australia, because Australia wasn't all that recently colonized by this point, um, things from South America, things from, from a lot of Africa, a lot of Asia um, would have been known to him pretty well we are still like a hundred years before the uh, the bone wars right yes okay like i said the word dinosaur w would not even come around until like a decade or two after this guy died gotcha so which is why yeah but okay right? uh so as of 1785 he graduated from that prep school and attended the caroline academy in stuttgart germany even though he didn't speak german uh, although apparently he was such a quick learner that in just nine months at the end of the first school year, he won the whole school's prize for the German language. Huh. Yeah. So like brilliant, brilliant, quick learner guy. Uh, just a shame that he's a racist. Um, after graduating from that Academy and that, that was essentially like the equivalent of um, like late high school and like education stuff was not nearly as standardized across the world as it is today. Um, but by this point, he was probably in his late teens, early 20s. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't have a job lined up after he graduated, which is relatable. Um, so he basically started <laughs> off as a tutor. <laughs> to... I'm sorry. No. <laughs> um, yeah, so he started off as a tutor to the son of some rich guy in Normandy, uh, which is sort of the part of France that is right across uh, from England. Um so yeah, he just tutored this rich guy's son, uh, which also is a very common practice today. If you don't have a job lined up is to be, be a tutor. Um, 
And it was yeah. it was around this time that he started comparing the anatomy of living things, which he was uh, still already quite familiar with, to things that were fossils, things found in the ground, um, which today sounds kind of obvious. You find a thing that we know was from an animal, you compare it to other animals to see what it was. Um, but 200 plus years ago, um, that was not nearly as obvious to people. And so here's where his story kind of takes a weird turn. Cause by this point, he's mostly just like a smart guy from a, a decently wealthy family. Um, but like I said, it's not like he had some job lined up after college essentially. Um, and so he just started working for this guy in frankly, the middle of nowhere in Normandy, even still today is not a highly populated area. Um, mm-hmm. So to keep learning new things while he was tutoring this, this kid, he would often attend local meetings of about various subjects, mostly things like agriculture. At one of these meetings in a nearby town called Valmont, he recognized some of the lectures given by a guy named Henri Alexandre Tessier. And this guy was once a well-known physician and soil scientist in Paris uh, but in the late 1700s, that was not a good time to be a well-known, wealthy person in Paris. <laughs> so, and Gavin, why is that? Oh, the French Revolution and its associated uh, terrors, as they're called. Um, <laughs> so this guy wisely packed up and fled out to the countryside and had assumed a fake identity. Got the hell out of there. Yeah, so he was still using this fake name, but Cuvier had read some of his papers uh, under his real name, and uh, by listening to the guy talk, f- just just figured out that this was the same guy, and he went up and talked to him and addressed him by his you know his f- you know true name, and the guy kind of freaked mm-hmm. out because he'd been had. Um, well, yeah. And once Cuvier explained, "Hey, I don't I don't want to revolution you, man." Uh, he he wanted to learn from him. After that, they became buds. And uh, Tessier introduced him to all his scientist buddies in Paris. And Tessier once wrote to one of his friends, quote, I have just found a pearl in the dung hill of Normandy. Wait, wait, the what hill? Dung hill. When you say dung. Poop. <laughs> Referring to Cuvier as the pearl. <laughs> all right, keep going. So by this point, it had been quite quite a little while. You know, he'd been there for a few years. So now it is uh, 1795, which is after most of the French Revolution, but it's still not a great time to be a rich yeah, person I mean, just in Paris. Some, so just for some context, when I teach this to my 10th graders, we sort of go up to the reign of terror. Right. Um, and then we don't really teach. We just like, there's other stuff that happens, but we don't, it's not important historically. Right. The Reign of Terror, I'm just looking it up now, you know, was done in 1794. Yeah. So there's still lots of other stuff happening. There was the White Terror. There, like, there's stuff that takes place. But the French Revolution, as most people know it, was done, you know, by 1794. Right. Yeah. So um, he arrives to Paris very shortly after the revolution happens. And he becomes the assistant to Jean-Claude Mertrude the chair of animal anatomy at the Jardin des Plantes, or the Garden of Plants, which is the main botanical garden in France, and also is the headquarters for the National Museum of Natural History. And purely coincidentally, um, because it is, you know, 
the premier place in France at the time for studying nature. This is also where that Buffon guy had been the head of uh, while he was publishing that encyclopedia, but he had died about seven years before Cuvier got there. So he was now walking in the literal footsteps of the, the guy who wrote that encyclopedia that he used to read front to back. And at this point, I went down a very deep rabbit hole about the museum and the revolution because there's a very fascinating story. And the more I read, the cooler it got. Um, a lot of stuff added to the museum at this time. Um, so the, the garden itself had been like the medicinal garden to the king originally. And then when the revolution happened, obviously that wasn't a thing anymore. Um, so they turned it into, into a museum. And so the museum officially formed in 1793. So only a couple years before this and pretty much everything added to the museum to start with was stuff that was taken from rich people who had been killed or thrown in jail. Hmm. So all these rich people had all these things from around the world, including animals. Um, so they had a big zoo at this place as well. Um, so all the things in the museum from the late 1700s came from uh, revolutionaries taking them from rich people and giving them to the museum for the public to enjoy. I mean, that's like a nice kind of twist on history. Yeah. Um, like I said, the, the more I read, the more interesting it got. So uh, there potentially will be an episode about this museum in the future for sure. <laughs> okay. Um, so, but again, all that had already happened by the time Cuvier got there. So Cuvier served as, uh, the director's assistant from 1795 until 1802, uh, when that guy died. And then Cuvier took his place and renamed the office, the chair of comparative anatomy, which was, again, he was sort of the first guy to really popularize the idea of comparative anatomy. And this is one of the main ways that he did it. Can you remind us one more time just what is comparative anatomy? Yeah, so it is um, just comparing the anatomy of one species to another or one group of animals to another. Uh, for example, a, a way to sort of explain, because um, we've talked about bats before. We had a whole episode about them. We haven't had an episode about birds in particular yet. Um, but sort of comparing how their wings are shaped and what muscles they use to fly, that kind of thing is comparative anatomy. Gotcha. Okay. Is that still um, like an accepted methodology today or is that just sort of like the best that was available at the time? No, absolutely. So I uh, took, so I, I didn't take any classes that were like named comparative anatomy, although I know people who did. Um, but I took probably five or six semesters of things that could be considered comparative anatomy throughout my college and, and grad school. Mm -hmm. And so that was, you know, everything to a paleontologist because uh, you need to know what the anatomy is. And then you don't really know what the anatomy means until you start comparing it to other things. Okay. So this is, it's still a, you know, a thing that's done today. Yeah. Absolutely. By serious people. Absolutely. Gotcha. Okay. So although Cuvier was that guy's assistant for seven years, um, he didn't just get the position when, you know, when that guy died because he was the assistant, he actually did a lot in those seven years. So uh, let's go over some of the first things, some of the things that he did. So he published two crazy important papers uh, in 1796. So he'd only been there for like a year. And so the first one was called Notes on the Species of Elephant, Living and Fossil. 
where he compared the anatomy of the Indian elephant, African elephants, mammoths, and mastodons. And although at the time, mastodons didn't have a name yet because they were so new. So people just... You mean like newly discovered, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, And so they were just referred to as the Ohio animal because they were from Ohio. Sure. Um, And so he was the first person to establish that the Indian elephant and the African elephant were different species. They had always been considered the same. I, if I had to guess, so let me, you said the African and the Indian elephant. Yeah. So my first guess was going to be that like very few people had seen both of them, but if they're, you know, African and Indian aren't that far away. Um, Right. Like, so I imagine that's actually not the case to the untrained eye. Do, uh, do they look rather similar or would you be able to look at them and be like, something's different about these two? Um, different enough. So for example, the one you're picturing in your mind probably is an African elephant. The ones that are, have the uh, bigger tusks, big flappy ears. Those are African elephants. Indian yeah. elephants have much smaller ears, generally smaller tusks. Um, and then their forehead also is much more sloped instead of like, um, an African elephant, their forehead looks honestly kind of similar to a human forehead where it goes up and then curves back. Um, whereas an Indian elephant, their forehead kind of slopes back at an angle. Um, Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, some characteristics of things like their teeth. Um, but if you, if, if you don't compare them and you don't know what you're looking for, it's, it's an elephant, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And he was also the first one to very clearly establish that even though those two are different and neither of them are mammoths, mammoths are another thing. So clearly he was like, we, where we find mammoth bones, there are not elephants. And if mammoths are their own thing and we don't, there are none around today, they must be extinct. Yeah, that logic seems to follow. Right. And then on top of that, he also established that the Ohio animal was even more different than uh, the mammoths were to, you know, living elephants. And then later on uh, in 1806, he would give them the name Mastodon. Uh, He tried to give that as the genus name, although it was already taken. So that is why uh, Mastodons have the genus Mammut instead of uh, Mastodon. Wait, 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 wait. So the animals mastodon, yep, have the genus. What was it called? Uh, they they current they have the genus mammut. Because another animal has the genus name mastodon. That's correct. So a mastodon's not a mastodon. Nope, that is the common word for them. The common name. <laughs> science, going back to episode one here. Science sucks sometimes. Right. But the thing is, this guy was so popular and so many people read his work that because he called them mastodons, that is what they became. Even though that is not not an accurate name for them anymore. Mm -hmm. Hi, this is editing Gavin here real quick. Uh, Even though I just said that's correct to 
something else being named Mastodon, uh, the genus before this, uh, that was actually not quite correct. That's not why Mastodons do not have the genus Mastodon. Uh, in fact, the reason is because some guy who didn't quite know what it was yet gave it a name, a scientific name, in 1799. So um, about 18 years before Cuvier tried to name it Mastodon, but because what turned out to be Mastodons already had a name, uh, that name that was named first gets sort of the precedent. So uh, only partially correct when I said that's correct. That guy's name was Johann Frederick Blumenbach from Germany, who was uh, slightly before Cuvier's time, although he did die a little bit afterward. He was also an interesting figure in uh, a lot of schools around sort of natural history at the time. Uh, he also did lots of uh, racial studies, which we'll talk about with Cuvier in a little bit here. He came to very different conclusions than Cuvier, though, in that um, racism is bad, actually. Hot take for the late 1700s, I know. But yeah, cool guy. Maybe maybe look him up after this episode. All right, back to the show. So again, that was just the first paper of 1796. His second one described a large skeleton from Paraguay, a smallish country in South America, and by comparing it to various living animals, he concluded that it was some form of giant sloth that lived on the ground instead of up in the trees. And he gave that the name Megatherium. And today it is one of the best studied and also the largest ground sloth that we know of today being roughly Indian elephant size, which uh, I didn't say this before, but Indian elephants are a bit smaller than African elephants as well. But um, so if this thing were alive today, it'd be a contender for the largest land animal. Um, But Nobody else had any idea what this thing was because a sloths in general, the ones we have around today are extremely strange animals. They do everything real weird. Uh, their teeth don't have enamel. Um, they, their vertebrae are very strange. They, they articulate to one another very weirdly. Um, but because they were a, from a place where there's was not a lot of science being done at the time in South America and uh, also a weird member of a weird group of animals, nobody else knew what this thing was. But because Cuvier was so familiar with groups of animals from all around the world, he was able to tell that, that, that this thing was a sloth. Okay. Um, and he also concluded the same way that he did with mammoths. He was like, this is very clearly extinct because it's a giant elephant-sized sloth. And if this was still around, we would notice it. <laughs> An elephant-sized sloth? I would imagine. At least I would think so. Right. So, again, these two papers, published both in the same year, basically cemented in the scientific and public consciousness that extinction is a real thing that can happen. And he did that, like I said, in the span of a year. Was there... I know you mentioned before about how when we say, like, the first to happen, we're usually talking about, like, white guys... But, like, were there people before this, and I don't just mean, like, a dude somewhere, but were there, like, prominent people saying this is a thing and they just weren't taken seriously, or they couldn't prove it? Or was he really, like, the first, like, he just brought it into the public consciousness? Um, A bit of both. So he was the first one to actually be able to, like, show good evidence of it, as Mm -hmm. well as the first person to bring it into the public consciousness. And, for example... um. Lots of people, for example, like I know there's some like Native American cultures in like the the Great Plains area where it's like 
a lot of the fossils around there are from giant reptiles and they would recognize, Hey, this thing sure doesn't look like anything around here. It's probably just gone now. Um, and that's part of their, their culture. And so if he had asked some people, maybe he would have had, uh, gotten to a little quicker <laughs> or somebody else may have. Um, mm-hmm. but he was the first one to really convincingly show with, you know, the data to sort of back it up. Okay. But he's not done still while well, he's just the assistant, not even in charge of the, the office yet. So in 1799, so this is all during the seven years he was the assistant. We're not even at the fact he's in charge yet. Nope. Oh, geez. Okay. So once he was able to get to a place that gave him the ability to publish and have access to, you know, specimens and, and fossils and things to have his hands on, then he was able to really start churning out work. Mm-hmm. So in 1799, he became a professor at the uh, professor of natural history at the French National University. And then in 1802, he uh, took over that job as the chair of comparative anatomy at the museum. And every two years, the museum would elect a new director of the whole museum. So not just, you know, the chair of his department, uh, a new director of the whole museum. That was this whole democracy kick that France was on at the time. Um, (laughs) And so they would do that every two years and you couldn't serve two years in a row from what I could find. I didn't find anybody that was uh, two, you know, terms in a row. So Cuvier was uh, elected four times from uh, 1808 and 1809 and then long gap in 1822 to 1823, 26 to 27, and then 30 to 31. So while he was there, he was a director for uh, like eight years of the roughly like 35 that he was there. Um, And then he kept that chair position, the chair of uh, comparative anatomy that entire time up until he died in 1832. Among all the other things that he did during this time, he served as a personal counsel to Napoleon, who was uh, doing mm-hmm. Napoleon things around this time. Uh, what year was, was this? Uh, this was just over the span of the early 1800s. Okay. Um, he was the president of the Council of Public Instruction, so like a you know public education uh, organization. And many other, you know, important facing director type roles. Um, And then as I sort of alluded to earlier, throughout all of his life, he was a very devout Lutheran. Uh, He helped found the Parisian Biblical Society in 1818. And uh, from 1822 until he died in 1832, he was the Grand Master of the Protestant Faculties of Theology at the French University. So this guy had a whole lot of hats. (laughs) <laughs> so that's his general life. Let's take a, a closer look at some of his contributions to science. And some of them we already elaborated on, so we won't walk through those too much. But the extinction okay. thing, we, we talked about why that was super important. Um, although, as per usual with these old-timey scientists, even the ones that turned out to be right were only kind of right. So, Which, all right, fine. Cuvier did not believe in evolution. I mean, how are we post Darwin at this point? No. So Darwin, uh, 
published his book on the origin of species in 1859. So um, almost 30 years after he died. I mean, okay. Like, which, which to be fair, oversimplified to be like, oh yeah, you know, pre and post Darwin, but like you could be forgiven for not being totally on board with evolution in the early 1800s. But it's, and, and, it's often phrased with a lot of big name scientists that they were sort of the first person to ever do a thing, which is something I kind of tried to avoid a little bit in this episode. But so Darwin was not the first person to talk about evolution. He was the first one to put it in a way that made sense. Right. Um, but there were other people talking about evolution, um, just in ways that did not, work as well as Darwin did, if that sort of makes sense. So, uh, for example, what what Cuvier personally believed to sort of reconcile the his idea of extinction with his faith, because if, if evolution is not happening, how do you get new things when other things go extinct? Was sort of the first question I had when I read that he didn't believe in evolution of any form. So, he sort of thought that God would create animals, new animals, and then every few thousand years there'd be a large catastrophe and many things would go extinct to be replaced by new creations. Which we we know is not how it works in in you know the real world, but he also wasn't totally wrong about the catastrophes because what he recognized as the catastrophes we later sort of identified as mass extinctions. So what would the difference be between what he called the catastrophes and what we call a mass extinction? Was it, is it a different name for the same thing or have we discovered more about that since then? Sort of a, just a different name for the same thing. He also, um, I don't know his exact thoughts on how old the earth was. I actually don't really know many people's thoughts about like the general consensus on how old the earth was at this point in time. Um, okay. So it's kind of tough to, you know, cause even back as, you know, as recently as like the sixties, like 1960s, um, we didn't have great numbers for like exactly when things happened, which is often why you hear, um, like when the dinosaurs went extinct at 65 million years ago, that was the old, that was the number at one point in time. We now know it's 66. Um, that's just a very right. small deviation. But right. back at this time, um, if you go outside and there's, say you find the layer of ash from a giant volcanic eruption or something, and there's only like two feet of rock above it where you are, you could be forgiven for thinking, oh, this must not have happened all that long ago. And so a couple thousand years ago, God erupted this giant volcano and reset the world and put new animals on it. So not a totally unreasonable line of thinking for the, the general scientific thought at the time. So uh, among other things, Cuvier had a, uh, because he had such a strong reputation for all of his various publishings and the offices that he held and things, uh, his strong criticism of evolution and the ability for species to change is a, a decent part of what kept evolution from being 
more widely accepted until Darwin. That's sort of his sort of short-term lasting impact. Like, well, if Cuvier didn't believe in it, then it can't be true. Okay. Uh, moving away from evolution, he was one of the first biostratigraphers, which I mentioned earlier is sort of using fossils to say this layer of rock in this spot and this layer of rock in this other spot are the same layer of rock, even though they're not connected, but they are from the same time because they have the same fossils. That is biostratigraphy. Um, I feel like I did that in, uh, in earth science in yeah, ninth grade. Exactly. Okay. Uh, he also sort of established the idea of faunal succession. Uh, where the types of fossils you see will change as the ancient environment changed. So if sea levels rise, if you look at a set of rocks, it will look at like, it'll show a beach and then a, you know, sort of shallow ocean, then a deeper ocean, then a deeper ocean as you sort of go up. So he was the first one to say, hey, the shape of these clams fit more for deeper oceans as you sort of go up the rock layers. Um, He's the first one to sort of recognize that those two things are related. He also, like I said, studied lots of reptiles as well. He mostly did a lot of stuff with mammals. Um, but his big thing with reptiles was he was the first person to describe a mosasaur, which are the giant marine uh, lizards from the time of the dinosaurs, the one that eats the Indominus Rex at the end of Jurassic World, uh, as well as a small flying reptile that he uh, that was found in Germany and brought to him. He suspected that these were from a time where reptiles were much bigger and more abundant than mammals. And he named the flying reptile Pterodactyly, which was then later given like a proper like Latin name, Pterodactylus Antiquus. And now everyone just calls them pterodactyls, uh, mostly because of him. Wow. And like I said, despite everything with the reptiles, um, he was best known for his work with mammals that particularly mammals that were not all that well studied at the time because they weren't native to Europe. <laughs> things that were native to Europe really well studied at the time. Um, but things like elephants, manatees, rhinos, tapers, seals. Uh, he was a big part in building any type of uh, literature based about these groups of animals. So he would often publish an extremely detailed study going through all the anatomy of a modern group of animals just so that he could later publish a detailed description of a fossil animal related to that group. So he would do double the work just so he would have something to compare his current work to. So is this like a, in early literally nobody else can do this version of like peer reviewing. Honestly, kind of. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the process at the time for peer review or if that was even a wide concept. I know that kind of started in England. Right. But, th- but this is him checking his own work essentially. And this is, this normally- is him checking his own work beforehand so that when people question his fossil papers, he could direct them back to his previous work on the living groups. Right. Versus today, we would, you know, in addition to checking your own work, we would, you know, point you to all these other people that have, you know, theoretically also done the same study and gotten a similar result. Right. He didn't really have that as an option. So he's just saying, hey, look at, uh, you know, 
uh, look at this work that I've done, you know, over and over again and gotten the same result. Right. Okay. Um, and as I mentioned, sort of most of mammalian paleontology is built on top of this foundation that he built in the, by this point, the early 1800s. And his main book that he published was called Lorenia Animal or the animal kingdom. And, uh, if you remember, I don't remember what episode number it was, but we've mentioned before talking about, um, taxonomy, which is sort of the kingdom phylum class, uh, order family, genus species, the, the levels of giving things names. When Carolus Linnaeus first created it, order and, oh, I'm sorry, uh, phylum and family were not included originally when Linnaeus uh, made his system. Cuvier was the one that added phylum. He was like, there's, there's, I need an extra layer here. I need some more ways to put things in boxes. And so the, the P in kingdom phylum class order family genus species came from Cuvier. Mm -hmm. And then people were just like, well, good enough for Cuvier. I guess it's, I guess it works. <laughs> <laughs> and these are just some of the highlights of his contributions to science. Um, so this episode is going to run a little long, but we could go on and on, talk about all the things that he did. Um, but now it's time for the racism stuff. Um, yay. <laughs> um, so let's, let's talk about the quote unquote scientific uh, views on race at the time. Most scientists were also quite religious. Cuvier was not sort of an outlier in that. Um, the more religious ones tended to think that there was a single origin of humans from Adam and Eve. The more racist ones thought that non-white people couldn't have come from Adam and Eve because God made Adam and Eve. Um, so they must have been created some other way. I got some bad news about Jesus of Nazareth, but okay. Oh, right. Um, well, also, I think generally they considered like Middle Eastern, I guess Caucasian is the better term that they would have used than white. Um, I believe Middle mm -hmm. Eastern people are c considered Caucasian by these people's standards. Oh, I, I swear. If we try and like bury down the logic of racists, we're going to well, yes. a long time right. and get yeah. nowhere. Exactly. Um, and so Cuvier was kind of both of these things. And... Uh, I want to preface this by saying all of the following are his words, not mine. Um, so he believed that Adam and Eve were a Caucasian and that all humans did come from them, but that the quote Mongolian or as he would also say yellow or, uh, and Ethiopian or black races were originated by survivors of some great catastrophe that happened around 5,000 years ago. So one, one of his ca catastrophes that he also hypothesized would have caused various things to go extinct. So um, it's also just a little confusing with his thoughts on evolution, because if he didn't think species could change, if he thought all people originally were white and then some became not white, little c conflict there. Mm -hmm. um, as there often is in the logic of racists. Um, <laughs> and so another quote from him, Quote, the white race with oval face, straight hair and nose to which the civilized people of Europe belong and which appear to us the most beautiful of all is also superior to others by its genius, courage and activity. Not great. Um, and then another quote. I mean, 
Well, go ahead. There's, there's just nothing to say. It's just, no, there's, you know, there's not. Right. There's, there's a small part of me that wants to try and give some credit to these people as products of their time or didn't know any better. And then like you, like there was people around at all of these times being like, no, like, yes, like very loudly. We did a whole episode on one of these guys being yeah. like, no, you don't get to say product of their time. You don't get to say they didn't know any better when like people did and people were loudly saying as such. Yeah. And it just, it, it's just so incredibly frustrating with people that, and again, this goes back to what we said at the beginning, like people are complicated. Like you can both say that this dude was really important to science and, you know, help progress the field forward, you know, you know, at an astonishing rate. And he was also a piece of crap racist. Yeah. Yep. Garden variety for the time piece of crap racist. But those, still, those are not mute. Well, Wills, we'll talk about whether he was garden variety or advanced oh, racism. Son of a um, I want to swear, get can I swear? Can I do a swear? Uh sure. Son of a bitch. All right, here we go. That may or may not be bleeped in post. We'll figure it out. Um uh, well, hey, I don't that's know. up to you. Yeah. Um, so one more quote. Quote The Negro race is marked by a black compre- complexion crisped or woolly hair, compressed cranium, and flat nose. The projection of the lower parts of the face and the thick lips evidently appropriate to uh, approximate it to the monkey tribe. The hordes of which it consists have always reminded in the most complete state of utter barbarism. (laughs) That literally makes me just want to puke saying that. Um, So he like I mentioned earlier, made lots of measurements of the skull and other body parts uh, to back all of his thoughts uh, up, uh, basically saying Mm -hmm. that other races were less intelligent and inferior to white people and his work and particularly these quote unquote data points um, have been used literally for hundreds of years by people who advocated for things like eugenics, um, white supremacy, people who use science to try to justify their racism. Gross. And so here is where I sort of transition to the advanced racism part, but we need a little story time first. So this is sort of where that slight trigger warning that I mentioned at the beginning kind of comes in. So the worst sort of case study. about So content warning for what exactly? Just for Um, some context. More or less human trafficking. Awesome. So... This is the story of uh, a woman named Sarah Bartman. So Sarah was born in South Africa from like a group of uh, local indigenous people there. And she had a genetic condition that was not uncommon for women of, you know, from this part of the world that essentially causes uh, excess tissue growth in the butt and hip area, Uh, particularly much larger than uh, it, you know, European folks were used to seeing on a woman. At the time. Um, so at the age of 21, she was sent to London to be shown off in various basically freak shows. Um, it said on her Wikipedia page, which we'll have linked in the show notes, that it is unknown whether she went willingly. Um, and they're actually based on some other things that I read. There was some reason to believe that she may have gone willingly at first based on accounts from like people who know who she seemed to be like actually close with uh, that, like knew her before she left. 
um, that she did want to go and even like made a deal. Like I won't go unless this other guy comes with me. And then that guy went with her and like mm. someone she was friends with. So, but there probably was some kind of coercion there for sure. Um, it's probably to put it mildly. So, yeah. Um, she was showed around mostly England and Ireland for a few years and then even testified in a court that she wanted to be there. Um, so England had just recently in the early 1800s uh, outlawed the import and trade of slaves. And so some abolitionist groups basically sued the people that brought her to England. And she testified in court like, no, I want to be here. I'm getting paid for doing these shows. She's like, I'm making actually kind of decent money for a black person in England. Right. And so the judge was like, all right, I guess she wants, she wants to be here. Um, and so uh, by all accounts, she was doing decently well while she was in England and Ireland. In 1814, she was taken to France by some guy named Henry Taylor could not find anywhere who this guy is or what happened to the people that she like knew and came to England with no idea what happened to them. Um, but Apparently, this was under duress because that guy then sold her to a fam- famous ballet director who continued to show her around France under much, much worse conditions than she had in England. Um, by the time she got to Paris, she was in really, really bad shape. Um, and instead of helping her, the various scientific minds around Paris, including Cuvier, decided to study her and would draw pictures of her nearly nude and in 1815, so a year or so after she got to France, she died of either smallpox pneumonia or syphilis, potentially a combination of the three at the age of 26. Mm. Uh, after her death, that ballet guy then sold her remains to the Natural History Museum that Cuvier worked at, where Cuvier dissected her, not for an autopsy, like a medical thing to see how she died, but to study her. Particularly... Um, <sighs> Yeah, particularly, like I said, skull measurements and things like that. But also he was quite detailed about things like her genitalia and those uh, extra like tissue growths around the butt and thigh area. Yep. Um, And so he did spend a decent amount of time, you know, studying her before she died. So he wrote a whole report after um, after he, you know, mutilated her remains. Um, and basically he included in the report that she was actually quite smart and was fluent in two languages and passable in a few others was a talented, uh, musician. Uh, however, he also frequently compared her looks and actions to those of monkeys, which is obviously not cool. Um, (laughs) and then to top it all off her skeleton and a sort of like wax dummy of her almost, um, were put on display in the museum from 1816 until way more recently than you might think, uh, 1937, when they were then moved to the French Museum of Man, where the remains stayed up until the mid-1970s, where the remains were then put in storage because people were like, hey, maybe you shouldn't be having this person that was trafficked into the country on display. Maybe that's not great. Um, but instead of returning her to South Africa and her people, uh, they just put her in storage. Um, until 1994. What does storage mean? Like museum collections. So basically a drawer somewhere. 
what uh, this is going to sound a little odd, like properly stored is that a thing in this particular context with regards to human remains no like it's not a thing i mean it can be i'm not an archaeologist or anthropologist i know it is there are certain things that you like legally have to do and then there are things that are just like you should do this mm-hmm. because it was a person and not just a horse from a few million years ago. Right. Um, so I'm not really qualified to speak on how to properly store a human body. Uh, but so like I said, it wasn't until 1994 when the recently elected South African president Nelson Mandela requ- formally requested her return to the president of France. Um, the people in charge of the museum then began to consider returning her remains. And there were debates even in things like the French parliament as to whether she should be returned or not. But after lots of legal stuff in May of 2002, she was returned to South Africa and buried properly. Her name is now on lots of things in South Africa, including a center for women and children, uh, a survivor's home for like domestic violence survivors, as well as uh, South South Africa's first offshore environmental protection vessel and the main hall of the university of Cape town in South Africa. And so there will be lots of links in the show notes for you to learn more about her. Um, lots of details of her life are actually known, which I think is uh, really interesting for a, it being 200 years ago and it for being, you know, a, a case where you just wouldn't expect people to have, taken down much about her before like outside of the gross weird science stuff and so all that said and done uh, this is an excellent example of why history needs context <laughs> all history needs context yeah. that's a I mean that that is a like you know boring way to put it but it's true well thanks Mike uh, you're, no, you're, the, you're the history guy here no, no, but like it's it's something that I try to impart on like my students though. It's just like it's it's hard to be like guys are or like like people are all good or all bad or like stuff is easy. Like so yeah, like the boring work is being is learning all the context surrounding everything. Yeah. And it's it's like, but that is the work. Exactly. And so Cuvier is without a doubt one of the best scientists who ever lived. Like, I don't think anybody who, like, knows what he has, con- you know, contributed to science would dispute that. But he's always going to have that asterisk next to his name for, obviously, you know, the individual case that we just talked about, but also just for fueling scientific racism for the last 200 years as well. Mm-hmm. Does his name still, I mean, I guess I don't know how often you hang around in scientific racist circles now like this is his name still gets cited and brought up now amongst these morons or is that part sort of faded into history and been picked up by other people um i would be shocked if it didn't okay i would be surprised um mostly because of how meticulous he was with his record keeping and like any reasonable person who today knows comparative anatomy would come to the same conclusions. Uh, if you already have the conclusion in your mind that 
black people and white people are, and people of different races are different, then his, you know, conclusions really back you up. Um, if you already have that preconceived notion. Um, but anybody who comes at it, obviously, without being a racist, uh, does not find that. Yeah. Unless they listen to this podcast. Well, no, this, no, this podcast is not racist. No, the, well, no, I'm not, that's not what I, <laughs> I know, the, buddy. I, I know, I know. You're the racist. You're the one that said it, all those things. I know. It literally made me feel so bad. I mean, yeah. But, but that's, that's also, you know, part of teaching history is, you know, granted you teach high schoolers. So some of the things that I'm sure were said by, um, who, who was, there was somebody where we had an episode early where it was like, yeah, they were against slavery, but they still hated black people. Oh, that was probably our episode on Governor Morris. Um, but it's was like, it was it one of my episodes or was it one of yours? I don't know. It might it might not even have been a whole episode. It might have just been like a conversation in passing during an episode or something. Um, I mean, that, that may well be like Abraham Lincoln, but right. I think that's sort of the the first people one that aren't came ready to for my that mind. conversation. Yeah. Right? Yeah, Abraham Lincoln d- did not like slavery, but also did not like black people. Uh, <laughs> also, like didn't like hate hate slavery compared to some other people at the time. Yeah, that's fair. Um, Get ready but for those... my conversation on why I don't like Lincoln later on. <laughs> I mean, you do have an episode coming up in a couple of weeks, so. I do. I got a couple of weeks to get ready for that. Anyway, thank you all for listening. And uh, yeah, I don't even know where to go after talking about all that racism stuff. Um, go learn about Sarah Bartman. You will be sad, but it ends happily as it should with, you know, her remains being returned to, to her people. Um, hopefully, uh, that ends well, unlike this episode, which is going to end right now. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening to episode 103 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike. That is Gavin. We hope to see you guys back here in another two weeks. Until then, take care, everybody. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fenella Campanino. It was sound edited and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you. 